Well, good morning again, uh, everyone, and especially if you're visiting with us this morning, it's great to have you with us, um, and we hope and trust that your time with us this morning will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, we're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 9. And can I just say, what an excellent question uh, Des posed to us this morning. Why did you come to church this morning? Maybe it's out of habit. Maybe it's out of routine. Um, maybe, as Des said, maybe it's because you're feeling lonely and you want to make friends. Um, but really, as Des said, it's no mistake that you're here. Uh, in fact, we believe as Christians that God is sovereign and control over everything and he's drawn you here. Why? Because he wants to draw you to himself. He wants you to know him and be known by him. And as this morning, as we come and as we look at Psalm 9, we see that truth beautifully expressed for us in the Psalms. So I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 20. And this is the word of the Lord. For the director of music, to the tune of the death of the Son, a Psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause. You have sat on your throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet have caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked return to the grave, all the nations that forget God. But the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. Arise, O Lord, let not man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Let's pray. Father, what a great joy and delight it is to come together this Lord's Day to worship you. 
We thank you, Lord, that we can come together and meet in your presence for your, you, you yourself promise that wherever two or more gather, you are there in the midst of them. Lord, we pray that as we sit quietly at your feet now and as we meditate on your word, that you would speak to us through it. We pray, Heavenly Father, for myself, that both what I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, you know where each, each one is at. You know our fears, the pressures that we face in our daily life. And we pray that as we've already heard this morning from your word, that we might find in you our refuge. Lord, bless us. Speak to each one of our hearts and the needs that are there. For we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes really wicked things happen in the world, don't they? Just this week, a young man from India, I think, lost his life here in Hobart when he was pushed into the water and drowned. He was quietly just sitting there down by the harbour with his girlfriend, I think, and somebody wanted to rob and steal her handbag and so pushed them both into the water, not knowing that he couldn't swim, and he drowned. Tragically, he lost his life. And he wouldn't have woken up that morning thinking, um, well, this will be the last day I have on earth. Such random crimes and events make you want to cry out in this world for justice, don't they? Especially when the people uh, involved are innocent and are not doing anything in and of themselves to provoke such an attack. Why? Why, oh Lord, it makes you want to cry out. And won't you judge those actions? More generally, though, uh, I've been struck by how many people in our own congregation here at Cornerstone have gone through or are going through all kinds of unjust trials. Some of them are really difficult, whether it be finances uh, being ripped off in the marketplace. It's a great injustice that seems to be increasingly common, doesn't it? Or maybe it's interfamily conflict. When things go wrong, it really does feel like everything's proverbially going to custard. Things can get so bad and even surreal that if you wrote it down as a script, sometimes I think for a soap opera, I think, yeah, that script would be probably rejected because it's just so unlikely to happen. But how often has things happened in your life and you go, that's exactly what happened to me? You never could have written it down. In fact, I think sometimes it's even worse for us who are believers, who take a, a stand for certain principles and certain truths. It can almost put you more pertinently in the firing line, can't it? Following Jesus doesn't mean that everything is going to be okay and that our problems are going to cease, does it? As we've been seeing over the past couple of uh, months, God's plan is for our faith to shine in the midst of the crisis. Not always to immediately remove the storm, but for our faith and our dependence on God in the midst of the storm to be strengthened. It's why the Apostle James can write, and these are quite shocking words, and if it wasn't inspired for the Holy Spirit, 
I think we'd probably even reject them. He says that we should consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. Pure joy? Why? Because we know, he says, that the testing of our faith works perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that we're mature and complete and not lacking anything. And so James says that even our trials under a good and loving sovereign hand of God, we can even consider them to be pure joy because we know that they're working something for good. They're making us more and more into the image of Jesus. Sometimes our trial can be health and that can be especially difficult, can't it? The unknown of what's going to happen with the certain diagnosis or the unknown of what might strike us down when we least expect it. Or possibly it's financial concerns. But as we've been seeing more often than not in the Psalms at least, it can often be interpersonal opposition. It can be people that can be one of the greatest trials that we have to endure. And it seems that the closer we walk with God, the closer we walk in the light of God's truth, the fiercer the battles with sin and darkness becomes. Significantly, if you still have your Bibles open, have a look at the superscription, that is the subheading of Psalm 9. That provides us the context of what David writes. It says that it's to the tune of the death of the sun. Uh, Don't worry about what maybe that tune is. It's just significant what that phrase means. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said that there's another way of interpreting this obscure Hebrew phrase, and it's not just the death of the son, but the death of the champion. So the son there is something of a title. And it leads him to suggest that David could have written this particular psalm after his defeat of the giant Goliath. It's impossible to be sure, but it's definitely intriguing And I think it does help to explain some of the the context, at least, of what David goes on to write in this particular psalm. We learn, remember, of that famous encounter between David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And it's one of the most well-known, well-loved stories in all of the Old Testament. I say story, I really mean historical event, because it really did happen of how David, this little-known shepherd boy at the time, slays the great giant of the Philistine army, an enemy of God's people. And he does it in such a dramatic and unexpected way by slaying him with the single shot from a sling. It's difficult to be certain that this this is the specific context, but it would definitely make sense of everything that David goes on to write. Even if this is not the case, it's still true. Because the psalm is divided into three parts. The first part talks about past deliverances in verses 1 to 8. The second talks about how God is our present refuge in verses 9 to 16. And then the final section deals with his future vindication in verses 17 to 20. What we've learned over the past couple of weeks in our short series on the psalms, though, is this truth that we should always come to the Lord for help. We should always go to the Lord for help. So much of this psalm is really about trusting in the Lord, singing praises to him, 
and prayer to him for deliverance. We should always go to the Lord for help. You're in a difficult situation right now? Not sure of what the outcome's going to be? Go to the Lord for help. He is your refuge. There are lots of storms in life. And the Lord is sovereign over them all. But his good and purposeful design is that we are transformed more and more into the image of his son. That we become more and more like Christ, as well as deepening our dependence and trust on him. Amen? The Lord is glorified in us when, like Job, we patiently persevere through our various trials. That's the challenge of true faith, isn't it? Because Satan's great accusation is, take all of those good things away from them, Lord, and they won't worship you. Will you continue to worship the Lord in the midst of the trial? Can you say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want you to once again notice the three different tenses in the psalm. Past, present, and future. Because these three different perspectives are with us all the time as believers. You see, we want to be able to look back in praise for how the Lord has faithfully delivered us from our enemies. David says in verses 1 and 2 that he wants to praise God with his whole heart. What a great way to start church this morning. To praise God, to focus on him, to tell forth his wonderful deeds, to make music and to sing out in praise to God. That's not natural. That's the work of God's spirit. How do you know somebody's filled with God's spirit? It's that they are thankful. It's that they are grateful. It's that they want to sing to him. It's often, so often, why why worship is often conflated with music. Worship is so much more than that, but it's channeled through that. It's an expression fundamentally of that. I want you to stop, stop and just think about something you were worried about maybe three or four months, maybe six months ago. It could be shorter, it could be longer than that. But think back to a time when you were in real need and you were really hanging on to God. You were walking by faith and you're like clinging on with your fingernails. You were crying out to him in prayer and you were genuinely worried that your enemy was going to triumph over you. Think of that time. Since then, how has the Lord answered your prayer? How has he been faithful to you? It's not always in a way we might like. Like Job, it could be that he's taken things away from you. But it's always for our good. Because God always answers us according to his wisdom and his will. And sometimes it's only in hindsight that you can see that, can't you? We always have hindsight, 2020 vision in hindsight. But in the present, we have to walk by faith and not by sight. So often, though, we see those wonderful answers to prayer, don't we? 
And it's easy to take those answers to prayer for granted. Like the 10 lepers in Luke 17. I love this uh, incident in Jesus' ministry. All 10 of them are healed of leprosy. All 10 instantaneously as they're walking along the road. And yet only one comes back to say thank you. Isn't that incredible? What was going on there? They were all miraculously healed of leprosy, of which medicine couldn't heal. And only one came back to say thank you to Jesus and to show gratitude. Not only that, but he was a Samaritan. Someone whom the Jews would have considered to be something of a religious heretic and an outcast. It would be like saying this. There were ten people that got healed of cancer, terminal cancer. Nine of them were evangelical Christians and one of them was a Jehovah's Witness. And the Jehovah's Witness came back to say thank you. That's how shocking it is to our sensibilities. But it also shows how um, humility in expressing his gratitude to Jesus rather than any of the lepers on that occasion who were Jewish. You know, I think one of the ways that we can sin against the Lord, friends, is by failing to be thankful. You know, it's a weird thing, isn't it? But our failure to do something, our failure, our reluctance to show gratitude is in and of itself a sin. There's this beautiful old hymn, which we rarely sing anymore, but we should. We should. Uh, it's called Count Your Blessings. Some of the older members are nodding their heads going, yep, know that one. All right. Naomi Richardson knows this off by heart. So, The whole hymn is noteworthy. But just listen to the first verse. It says, When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. And then the refrain goes like this, Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what the Lord hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what the Lord has done. It's beautiful, isn't it? Finally, at the end of the hymn, it says this. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. You see, we can become so myopic that we only look in on ourselves and fail to develop a spirit of gratitude. And especially when our problems are finally sorted out, we're tempted to think, we're very tempted to think, well, it probably would have happened anyway. Probably would have got it sorted out. But we should remember that everything we have is from the sovereign hand of God. Who alone, David says, upholds our cause. And judges righteously. Who judges the world in righteousness and governs the peoples with justice. So make sure you give God the praise he deserves. 
and that you're constantly cultivating a spirit of thankfulness. There's nothing really more ugly than an unthankful Christian. Don't focus on what you don't have and instead look at all of the different ways God has been good to you. That's not only the truth which this particular psalm teaches. It's throughout the whole Bible. So often the great leaders, the great patriarchs, prophets of God's people, they live in caves. They don't often live in palaces. The, other, the second truth that David talks about is immediately goes on to talk about our need to trust in God as our present refuge. That's interesting, isn't it? Have a look again at what he says in verses 9 and 10. In many ways, these are the key verses of the entire psalm. It's beautiful, really, because just because God has delivered you in the past doesn't mean you live this victorious Christian life with no struggle now. There are still times where you need God to be your refuge. David says, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. You know, it's really easy to forget what happens to David after he kills the giant Goliath. That great event, really monumental. It's the climax of everything that happens, you know, so far in the biblical story. After his famous victory, he becomes something of a national hero. And when he returns home, everybody's singing his praises and they say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. Saul obviously becomes jealous. And as a result, in the very next chapter, repeatedly tries to kill David. So David has defeated the great enemy of God's people and delivered them from oppression. And in the very next chapter, he's running for his life. David escapes and experiences increasing success in the midst of Saul's literally demonically inspired hatred and hostility because the Lord actually sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. I say specifically, or I say eventually, because it's not like all of these difficulties, though, were resolved overnight. David spends years running from Saul, hiding in the desert, living in caves. It's a desperate and dangerous situation that David has to endure. And even though God is his refuge, there is a very real threat that David is seeking God's protection from. So don't think just because there's a very real danger for you that God has left you. And don't think that what David is writing here is just empty or pious words. They were written in the heat of the conflict, in the poverty, in the desperation of a cave. It's sobering to realise just how many of the Psalms were inspired uh, by God and given to David when he was at his lowest point. Like Psalm 51, which was written after he had committed murder 
and adultery. Or Psalm 34, which was written when David pretended to be insane from Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. Sometimes we read what is written in places like Psalm 9, and I think what we assume is, well, we'll never face any real danger because God's my refuge. (laughs) But just stop and think about the logic of that. You only go to a place of refuge when you are in danger. The fact that you can praise God that he's your refuge means that he is protecting you from something that is very real and fierce. To think that you would never face as a believer any danger or any threat, it's just not true. How many psalms would we have with us today? How many psalms, brothers and sisters, would we have in the Bible if David never faced any kind of hardship? They'd be greatly limited. I used to live in Southern California, and they've worked out in Southern California the perfect conditions for growing tomatoes. They've got this thing in California, if there's any blemishes on tomatoes, like, you know, no one buys them, right? So they've worked out this this beautiful way of just growing them big, no blemishes, you know, uh, flawless, basically. They put them in these, these gigantic hothouses. Everything is controlled. The heat, the light, the water. You know, if they're a little bit stressed, they get the water come down. These tomatoes are like tomato heaven for them. The only problem is these tomatoes have no taste. Because the tomatoes which taste the best are the ones, ironically, that have experienced adversity. (laughs) Sometimes they're stressed because they don't have enough water. Sometimes they're stressed because of the wind or the heat or the cold. Now, obviously, too much of any of those things can destroy tomatoes. But if they survive, if they persevere through all those trials, then the result is amazing. And you know what? On a very if I can just shift gears for a minute, on a very serious level, I I think that's what God does with us, doesn't he? If you were just to be put into a spiritual hothouse where the heat was always beautiful, you know, the water came in at the right time, there was no wind or stress, you wouldn't grow. Any Christian I've met that's mature and, you know, has just got something about them has gone through trial. It's adversity and maturity, they just go hand in hand in the Christian life. As I said, though, obviously too much of one thing can be disastrous. What gets us through is finding our refuge in God, of trusting in him as our stronghold in the midst of the danger. Strongholds are a a wonderful form of protection against the enemy. Um, Sometimes I I ride my bike down to Tinderbox and it's scattered throughout the hills. I don't know if you've ever driven down to Tinderbox on the point there. There's still the remains of guns and and battlements which have been set up by the government to protect us in the past from invasion from 100 years ago. Some of the guns are still on the side of the hill. One part of Tinderbox which overlooks the entry to the Derwent and overlooks Iron Pot, there's this semi-underground bunker which you can still go into. You wouldn't really know it's there because it's really locked into the side of the mountain. It's kind of spooky and somewhat quaint. But I can imagine on, in the day when it was done, you would have felt incredibly safe. 
just take pot shots at boats in, in coming through. Being exposed, obviously, on the side of the hill would make you like a sitting duck, but in the past, bunkers were a wonderful sense of protection. How much greater, though, is our safety when our refuge and our stronghold is in the Lord? Like David, we still endure opposition and trial, but we know that God is our invisible shield. He himself will avenge our blood and not ignore the cry of the afflicted. What we need to do then, friends, is hide ourselves in the Lord, acknowledging that he alone is our stronghold and refuge rather than anything else in this world. Maybe that trial you're going through right now that is so painful and is causing you such difficulty is to take your grasp away from the things of this world you might be trusting in so that you trust in him alone. Oh, how many times does the Lord strip away all of these false things we rely upon until we finally trust in him? It happens over and over again, doesn't it? Notice how down in verse 13, David spoke about how his enemies persecuted him, of how he was even near the gates of death. The danger David was in was real. But that's why he cries out to the Lord for deliverance. If you're going through a trial right now, then know this. God has not abandoned you or forsaken you. Yes, the injustice you are enduring is incredibly painful and wrong. But the Lord is righteous and just. He sees and hears everything which occurs. Hold on to him because he's faithful. The pit your enemy digs, God's word says will be something in the end that they themselves fall into. The net that they've spread will entangle their feet. Like with David, it may take a while to occur, but he will not forget forever. I know it might seem like they get away with it for a while, but there's going to come a day when everything that's done in secret will be revealed. And doesn't that make you really, in a good way, a godly way, make your heart rejoice? In the first congregation I served as a pastor, there was a very difficult situation that the elders and I had to confront. Uh, The problem had been festering for years, but when it was addressed, some of the people felt obligated to side with their friends rather than what was right in this particular situation. Years after I'd moved, uh, I was found from where I was serving, one of the oldest members in the congregation rang me one day, completely out of the blue, who was very, very good friends with this person, and they said, I just want you to know, Mark. And I was like, yep, I just want you to know you're God's man. It wasn't really an apology, but it was a wonderful encouragement to see that, well, she could see that. I was trying to honour the Lord, however imperfectly, It's lovely whenever that happens, friends, but as you know, it happens less than it should. At least it happens less than it should now. Trusting God for present refuge, though, doesn't mean that you don't lose skin or you're not bruised. 
Now, having him as your stronghold means you're given protection in the heat of the battle. That's what shields are for, right? Protect from arrows that are really flying at you. Like, like Job, you persevere even when those closest to you say you should just give up and die. All of which brings us to the third and final point, And that is about looking to God for future vindication. The opposition of wicked men will always be there because we live in a fallen world. That's one of the things which is so great about the Bible. It's, it presents to us clearly the nature of human existence. We hear about the tragic events in Hobart this week of the young man dying and we can hold on to the great insight of Blaise Pascal and see that mankind is both the glory and the garbage of the universe. We do wonderful, beautiful things, but we, do, we are terrors at the same time. People are, the people of God are always going to have enemies. And that's why David concludes by asking the Lord to rise up and judge. David says in verse 20, Strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Now, just think at this point of what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in uh, Hebrews 12, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Consider him. Think of all that the Lord Jesus went through, where they spat on him and they mocked him and they beat him and they whipped him. Consider him who endured such slander from sinful men. Why? So that you do not grow weary and lose heart. That's the great temptation, isn't it? Particularly as believers, you can see all of these horrible things happen outside in the world or maybe inside in the church and you can be discouraged and you can lose heart. And it's why the Holy Spirit inspires his word to be written by saying, consider him. Consider Jesus as a wonderful example in this regard and he shows us why we should never give up. The people of God have always gone through trials like you are going through right now. It's not unique. In that sense, you and I are not exceptions or exceptional. It's not, it's not like none of us have been forced to live in caves and flee for physical safety, at least not yet. And if for some reason that suffering is a result of sinful obedience, or dis sorry, sinful disobedience, then be encouraged because even then the Lord is using your hardship to grow you even into the likeness of Jesus. I've got to stop and say this. Sometimes the suffering that we endure sometimes is a result of our rebellion against God. And our response should be repentance with a firm resolve to keep in step with the Spirit rather than to indulge in the sinful nature of the flesh. But no matter what you're going through right now, the word from God is keep worshipping the Lord. Praise him for how he has delivered you in the past. Trust him by making him your stronghold and your refuge now in the present. And finally, look to God for your future vindication as well. For while we are on this earth, our battle rages against the world, the flesh and the devil. The Lord Jesus said we shouldn't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can't do anything else. 
That's something of a strange comfort. Because they can obviously kill your body. They can actually cause physical suffering to occur. But we know the one who's conquered death. No, no matter what situation you're in, keep trusting the Lord because your enemy is just mortal. And like everything that is mortal, they'll ultimately pass away. God is eternal. He's an ever-present refuge in the midst of any trial. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for speaking to us through your word this morning. What a delight, what a privilege it is to meet together as your people and to sit at your feet. Lord, you know this trial and the struggle that each one of us has. And so we want to pray for each other this morning that you would help us to make you our refuge, our stronghold that in the midst of the danger we might bring you praise for how you have protected us. Lord, you know the things that are, that are happening to us that we're scared of, that we're frightened of. And so, Lord, we pray for the grace to trust you and to praise you. Lord, we pray for the grace to keep worshipping you, that like Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands and we ask for your blessing and your protection. We ask for your strength and your comfort. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing. And as we do, we're going to prepare our hearts um, to take the Lord's Supper together. So let's stand and let's sing praises to God.